phrase of 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In all circumstances, be grateful. In all circumstances, be thankful. In everything, let your heart, let yours be a heart of gratitude. This is God's way. This is God's heart. This is God's desire. I think I should make my apologies right up front. I don't know if this is going to be any good. I sat down yesterday to do a lesson and my head just felt like mush. Many of you have asked after Michael's well-being. He banged his head again and went into all the symptoms that he had last August when he had that brain injury and he was stumbling and he was slurring and all those things. And so we spent the night in the hospital and then concerned the rest of the time. There was some... The, the symptoms of the concussion have subsided much more rapidly than um, the last time. Last time it took 10 to 12 days. This time within four, now five days, he seems to be back to normal. He went to the neurologist on Friday and uh, had the all clear. He drove. So, you know, he's... Uh, there was some concern about the results of an EEG coming back to find out if there's an underlying cause, but the doctor said that's a very low probability of that. But the net effect of it was... By the time I got to Saturday, my head was tired. <laughs> so, yes. You recognize the irony of the last two conversations, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not asking for compassion. <laughs> what I'm doing... <laughs> what I'm doing is I'm explaining how this might be a little disjointed. <laughs> So I sat down and I wrote this thing out, and in the end, it made sense to me. I'm really hoping it makes sense to you. <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> we're within two weeks of our nation's Thanksgiving holiday, and this is a time in which we are reminded to be grateful. And so I was thinking it would be good for us to prepare ourselves by looking at gratitude through the lens of some of the ancient wisdom of those who have come before us. So, Gene, can you hit the next slide? I don't think Gene is still up there. Um, Cindy, could you go up and push the down arrow on the keyboard? And you'll have to do it one more time. Just the down arrow. That should do it. This is Thomas Erskine. I wanted to introduce him to you. Thomas was a British attorney and... Oh, you don't have to stay up there the whole time. It's, it's going to be a long time before it happens again. But just when I say, okay, now, Cindy, then you run up and do it again. All right. He was a British politician. He was a British attorney in the 1700s. He had a very interesting life. As a young man, he had a passion for adventure and he set out to make his fortune by joining the Merchant Navy. And he spent four years as a midshipman, but in the process of his four-year tour, he was elevated to the functioning office of lieutenant with the oversight of the ship that lieutenants have. However, when he came back at the end of those four years, he was still a midshipman because there was cost involved in buying the lieutenant's office, and he didn't want to do that. 
In the meantime, while he'd been at sea, his father died, so he didn't have financial resources. So he scraped together what little bit of money he had, and instead of buying uh, an office in the Navy, he bought an office in the Army. And he became an officer. That's the way it was done back in those days. You bought your way into that uh, role. So... Interestingly, it was in his role in the army that he discovered his life passion. It was the job of the officer to secure what they called spiritual succor for the men in his, uh, under his supervision, and that meant that he had to go out and buy a chaplain or do it himself. And since he was broke, he decided to do it himself. <laughs> and it's there that he learned to preach sermons. And come to find out, he loved it. Come to find out, he was good at it. And so, it was during those years that he hammered out the passion of his life that carried him all the way through his legal career and all the way through his political career. A little bit of religious background of the day. At that time, the Scottish church, and Erskine was a Scotsman, was profoundly influenced by a version of Calvinism. And in those years, Calvinism had become quite a rigid form of religion, very stifling and very exacting. And because of some misunderstandings, some misinterpretations of some of our faith's key doctrines, it had caused many Calvinists to lose sight of the essential center of our faith which is God is love. They had seemed to have lost, they seemed to have lost that process. And so as Erskine was training to become a lawyer, he couldn't restrain himself from speaking to this deviation that had happened in his own church. As his church was losing its way, he wanted to speak to the process. And his words... And his sermons and his writings and his actions as he lived out his political and legal career begin to reflect his desire to influence and bring a corrective to his church. So he uh, brought about a direct confrontation to the heavy-handed theologizing of his time and he contended that whatever God is, whatever the divine is, at the center, it is essentially of love. God is love. God is love. God is love. And that truth, he contended, changes everything. He saw the Christian tradition as a clear expression of this divine center, and he was convinced that if we rooted ourselves in our religion, we would be awakened to the love nature of God, and we would have within us what he called an excitement of gratitude. Awakened to the love nature of God and having within an excitement of gratitude. And in his writings, he became well-known for a quote that generation after generation finds and refines and refines. And this is the quote. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. I'll spend a little time talking about what that means. 
As I said, this saying has, generated, uh, has resonated with generation after generation through the years, and we seem to always refine our way back to it as a critical understanding of what it means to be Christian. Religion is grace, ethics is gratitude. Here's what Erskine was saying. When we find our way into the love divine, when we find our way into God and we understand that it is of essential nature, love, it makes a demand of us. It demands that we rethink some of the tweaking that has happened in our religious doctrines. We have to step away from the deeply entrenched idea that God is punitive. We have to step away from the deeply entrenched idea that God is just waiting for an opportunity to come smack you down for some bad thing that you've done. We have to step away from the deeply entrenched idea that God's fundamental posture toward the human being is one of mild disapproval at best and more likely this strong heart of condemnation. We have to come see God differently and the natural outcome of that process is a deep understanding of grace. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Now here's how the Christianity of his time had lost its way. They'd gotten caught up, as so many generations do, in their theologizing. And it was all an issue of logical, sequential thought, Built, uh, precept built upon precept and eventually coming to conclusion and that's what they had done. And it started with the idea that God is a being. Once we determine that God is a being, which by the way our tradition tells us we're not allowed to think. We're not allowed to think that God can be contained in any image, even the image of a being. However, we use the idea of God as being as a way of talking about that which cannot be talked about. But their starting place was to say God is a being and that that being exists somewhere, and that that being has attributes. And two of those attributes are God is omnipotent and God is omniscient. God is all-powerful and God is all-knowing. And once that was their starting place, that there is a being somewhere named God, and that being is omnipotent and omniscient, the implications are profound. If God is all-powerful, he made you, and he made you completely. And so consequently, everything that you do or every capacity that you have or every instinct that you carry is rooted in the all-powerful creativeness of God. And God is all-knowing. God knows past, present, and future. So nothing that you do or fail to do surprises God because God knew it all because God is all-knowing. And so this being knew what you would do and this being made you. And so consequently, they begin to grapple with the idea of you and I having choice. Do we really have choice? Because if I am made by God... And everything that I can, can do and will do is made of that power. And if the things that I will do and will not do are known in advance by God, well then, I really don't have much choice. There is a destiny that has been set before me. And this all being 
all-knowing God has made this life that I live well in advance. So the idea of choice began to get diminished in their minds, and it began to be subordinated to the predestining power of God. And that theological idea had become a bludgeon, and they were beating one another up with it. Because since we are all determined in advance, we can only hope that this God being chose us to receive grace. We can only hope that we were chosen in advance to be one of the fortunate few who have a destiny in the afterlife that is good. We can only hope that we will be the ones who get to go to heaven and not suffer eternal torment in hell. We can only hope. And the implication of that is that some of us, the thinking was going, are created as a morality tale for the rest of us. In other words, as some of us are destined for the eternal torment of hell, it's there to teach the rest of us a very important lesson. Don't do that. And so consequently, this being that created everything, knowing how it would turn out, had created some people for the express purpose of eternal torment as a morality tale. Well, these were the unspoken assumptions of this Calvinist theologizing going on at the time that Erskine was alive. And with these unspoken assumptions in place, it's not difficult to understand why Scottish Christianity had become very severe and very harsh and very condemning. How could they but do that? We've talked a lot about how our stories shape us. The stories that we tell ourselves shape how we experience life, shape the meaning that we um, find in our lives. As we've said so many times, you find what you look for, and your story determines what you look for. So, they were telling the story of God as a harsh, capricious, and condemning God And so it's no surprise at all that they had become a harsh people, a fearful people, and a condemning people. And it was to challenge this kind of intolerance and this harsh swing of the religious pendulum that Thomas Erskine began to write and began to speak. And what he culminated his speaking with was this fundamental concept. Religion is grace Ethics is gratitude. So when he wrote about the scriptures, he wrote about grace. When he wrote about politics, he wrote about grace. When he wrote about divine love, he wrote about grace. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. So when we distill down what he was saying, here's what it is. In its most essential form, divine love is a gift. It is not something that you go out and buy. It's not something that you will go out and earn. It's not something you go out and get. It is no more something that you can get for yourself than you can get the sun in the morning or the rain that waters the earth. It is simply a nature of the way things are. It's not something that you can go get. It is a grace. The Greek word is charism. It is a gift that is given to you. 
in its essential form, it awakens us and it transforms us, but we don't make it or earn it or get it. So now we spent two weeks talking about the future perfect tense, and we talked about how that informs our interpretive lens through which we look at religion. What we said is where we are today, Timex, is not always wonderful. But the promise of our tradition and the promise of those who have gone before us and based in their experience is that there is a time coming that we would call time Z, a redeemed time, a process that, a point at which we experience the divine life flowing in us. A day when the virtue of the divine shines in us and radiates from us. A day when our false selves are shed and our true selves begin to emerge. And our faith, our belief, we said, is in the surety of the process that happens between now and then, this process that we called why. And it is built upon our fundamental, simple awakening to life in which we desire and which we pay attention. And if we will do that simple thing, desire wisdom, desire love, desire peace, desire desire the fruit of the divine, desire divine connection. If we will desire and pay attention, the gravity, the gravitational pull of this divine life, this gravitational pull of the divine spirit, it will pull us forward in the same way that if you drop an apple, gravity will take it to the ground. This divine life will pull you forward. And if you were there for those lessons, you heard me use some terms like time X, time Z, process Y. If I had been using religion jargon instead of uh, talking about this with uh, grammatical terms, the ancient term that I would have used would have been grace. Time X, time Z, process Y can be reduced down to the ancient spiritual term grace. A process of redemption exists, and it exists beyond you, and it exists beyond me. It simply is. It is a process that you and I do not create. It is a process that you and I cannot create. It is a process we didn't design. It's a process we could not design. It is a process we do not earn, and it is a process we cannot disqualify ourselves from. The only thing that we can do is simply not pay attention, but you can't disqualify yourself from it. It cannot be withheld from you because you have been bad, and it cannot be awarded to you because you have been good. It just doesn't work that way. This process, this reality that exists, this redeeming, transforming process just is. We could liken it to divine gravity. It just is. The promise of transformation and redemption, it exists beyond you and me. It exists the same way that nature exists. And that ancient term that describes that process is grace. Religion is gift. Religion is grace. It is something outside of you that you get to participate in. Religion is a gift given us that you don't make. It is the gift of the life, divine life cycle. Some of you, when you were in middle school, can remember 
learning about the water cycle. The water cycle starts somewhere in the ocean or in a lake and water evaporates. And when it evaporates, it goes up into the sky. And when the wind blows it, it goes over the earth and where it begins to cool. And when it cools, it condenses. And when it condenses, it falls to the ground. And when it hits the ground, it rolls back to the ocean. And there it is, the life cycle. You didn't make it. You didn't design it. You didn't create it. You just woke up and were blessed by it. Because every day, the earth is watered. And every day, crops are nourished. And every day, this process is just existing. And all you have to do is just wake up and participate in it. Well, in a sense, what we're saying this grace process is, is it's a divine life cycle. It exists the same way that the water cycle exists. It just works for us. And the redemptive process, the transformative process is a, a grace just like that. A gift just like that. And so when we distill religion down, it is this. Simply being alerted to this cycle that is going on, whether you participate or don't. It is going on outside of anything you earn or do not earn. You can't earn rain. You can't earn evaporation. You can't earn condensation. And you can't earn transformation and redemption. It is just a process that happens. And it exists. It is a grace. It is a gift. So, you didn't design it. You didn't earn it. You're not responsible for it. It's a gift that just is. A gift that you awaken in the middle of. And it is yours to have. Religion is grace. Well, that's the first part of his famous quote. Religion is grace. The second part, ethics is gratitude. Ethics, then, is simply a response that we have when we awaken to grace. When we wake up and realize what's going on, we're grateful. When you discover the water cycle and you realize that it sustains and keeps you alive, you're just grateful. And you want to participate in it. You want to enjoy the rain when it comes and falls on the land. You want to participate in this cycle. And that's what ethics is, is participating in the cycle. When we awaken to this gravitational pull that is divine love, when we awaken to the redeeming wind of God that is always blowing, when we begin to experience the liberating work of the indwelling Spirit of God, when we begin to participate in the soul renovation that comes when we simply desire and pay attention, ethics is simply a response, a gratitude response participating response I thought that because I am so fearful that it would always be this way or that if I was going to change I would have to do it all by myself to myself I thought that because I have this addiction coursing through my brain that it would always be this way or that if I was going to change I would have to fix myself by myself and now I have discovered religion I have discovered grace. I've discovered the divine life cycle. 
And I have discovered that there is an always present movement of the divine life, the healing movement, the redeeming and rebuilding and restoring and repairing and curing movement of God, and I am grateful. And I want to chase it. And I want to participate in it. And I want to hunt it down. And I want to hurdle whatever gets in my way so that I can begin to track this thing to ground. And I want to follow it. And I want to embrace it. That is my response. That is my gratitude. And when I do, when I track this thing down, when I chase this thing, I find out what I'm chasing is about virtue. It is about the fruit of the Spirit of God. I am chasing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and faithfulness and gentleness. I am chasing after virtue. The God that I chase is loving, so in my chase I become loving. The divine that I chase is kind, so in my chasing I become kind. The God that I am chasing is of peace, so in my chasing I become peaceful. And I find myself able to control myself and be patient and be good. And as I chase, the divine life cycle awakens me to my true self, my made-of-the-same-stuff God is made of self. I am virtuous. As we saw some weeks ago, Paul say, I am God's righteousness. I am virtuous. I am ethical. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. Ethics is my response to discovering the gift in which I live. I savor the gift. I desire the gift. I appreciate the gift. I am deeply grateful to have discovered the nature of things, the way things are. And in this desire and in this gratitude and in this appreciation, the way that I treat people changes because of the divine life cycle I am in. The way that I do business with people changes. The way that I raise my children, the way that we think about and support our city's schools, the way that we think about and support our church community the way that we think about and support our neighborhoods, the way that we contribute our energies in the workplace, the morality that we bring to our lives, the ethic that we bring to our lives, the giving that we bring to our lives changes because I discover the life cycle in which I am participating. Gratitude is a gateway to ethics. Gratitude is a gateway to virtue. We awaken to the divine life cycle, the cycle of love and the cycle of healing and the cycle of transformation, the cycle of virtue. So there is a link between gratitude and behavior. There is a link between thankfulness and what we do. Awakening our souls to gratitude awakens our souls to morality. Conversely, deadening our souls to gratitude can deaden our souls to morality. Absent gratitude, our worlds become daily narrowed, narrowed, narrowed. 
absent gratitude, we become stingy, we become selfish, we diminish life down to the lowest common denominator, which is usually me and my and mine and my troubles and my concerns and what's going on for me. And so the ancients have taught us to stir up gratitude whether we felt like it or not. Not to wait for a spontaneous burst of gratitude to overtake us, but to stir it up intentionally, purposefully. To say to ourselves, self, I insist that you look for that in this world that has its origins in the divine life cycle, and I insist that you express gratitude and bring to mind that for which you are thankful. Every time we meditate here at NRCC, we conclude with a prayer. And one of the lines in that prayer is, and may we be thankful and appreciative in all that unfolds each day. Now, the ancient wisdom behind that prayer is this. As we bring our souls to thankfulness, as we bring ourselves into that posture of gratitude, we are participating in bringing ourselves to the divine life cycle. Bringing our hearts to gratitude is like taking vitamin C to help strengthen our connective tissues. It's like eating vegetables so that the trace minerals can strengthen our immune systems. We are enjoined by the ancient wisdom to be grateful because the lives that we live, the choices that we make, the words that we speak will be awakened by, will be determined by our heart's posture of gratitude. Now, our nation was founded on a deeply spiritual set of values. And for all the wandering that we've done, we're still a very deeply spiritual people. And this heritage is a gift to all of us. Eugene, can you drop down the next slide? One of those gifts has been a regular national call to this ancient practice of gratitude. As far back as General Washington, our national leaders began calling for days of thankfulness. Washington did it in 1789, gratitude for the founding of a nation. Infused into our national DNA, the ancient spiritual wisdom of thankfulness. Now, through a series of twists and turns over these last 200 or more years, we've regularly called one another to days of thanksgiving. Now, you'll recall in October here at NRCC, I encouraged you to practice and be attentive to the mindfulness exercise that we call examine of consciousness. And I was so gratified to see on our How's Your Soul Facebook page that Angela was bringing up the discussions. Whoa, 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 I know Doug's moved on to gratitude, but I'm still trying to figure out this examine process. I'm trying to figure out how we do this kind of stuff. And I was just so happy, happy, happy because examine isn't something that you do in October and then move on. Examine is something that we bring to mindfulness for our lives. And in the same way, gratitude isn't something that is limited to November holiday kinds of times. Like examine, I'm hoping that you'll see that this is a life posture kind of thing. It's a desire and pay attention kind of thing. It's a work it out over your lifetime kind of thing. It's a spiritual journey kind of thing because we are prone to look down. And we are prone to focus only on our troubles. It's what we do. 
And it is our disposition to forget that this divine life cycle is going on out there irrespective of us. And when we forget, we forget our blessings, we forget to participate. Recognizing this during the Civil War, Lincoln echoed Thomas Erskine and listened to what he wrote. With a single voice, may we, the whole American people in every part of our country, even those at sea or sojourning in foreign lands, may we set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving, as a day of praise. That part you might be familiar with because we've got the holiday. Listen to what else he said. And I recommend, while we are offering our gratitude, let us also be penitent for our national disobedience. He's referencing the Civil War. And I command you to think of, to pray for, and to serve all those who have become widows and orphans, mourners, or sufferers in this lamentable civil strife. Now Thomas Erskine, he expressed his gratitude by doing stuff. And he decided that he would use his legal career to stand for the rights of the oppressed. He fought for the right of free speech. He fought for the right of the individual to resist an unjust government without being charged with treason. He fought for the right of the press, defending people's rights to criticize their government. Thomas Paine was one of his clients. Tapping into the divine life cycle, awakening to this reality that exists, being called to gratitude, translates into working for the good of the earth, for the good of the other. Because that's what the divine life cycle does. And we hear the same in Lincoln's speech. Gratitude stirs us to live differently. Be grateful for divine blessings, he said. Yes, that's important. Set aside time and energy and effort to stir yourself not to forget the goodnesses of life. But express that gratitude by paying attention to the widows and to the orphans and to the mourners and to the sufferers. The very people that Jesus encouraged us to care for, the vulnerable, the hurting, the wounded, the needy. As you enter into the divine life cycle, this is what happens Gratitude moves us to care for people. Becoming, gratitude becomes an expression of thankfulness as we care for people. Religion is grace. Ethics is gratitude. So today, during our songs and stories time, I asked you to speak words of gratitude, and that is a very, very important step but it is a first step. It is not the deepest way that gratitude is expressed. The ancient wisdom calls us to much more practical expressions. Gratitude becomes something that we do, something that we say to someone, 
some way that we direct our energies, some way that we direct our monies, some way that we direct our resources. Gratitude is best expressed in ethics, in morality, in service, in goodness. So I encourage you to this ancient discipline. As Mr. Lincoln said, do not forget the blessing that life affords you, but also stir yourselves to not forget the people that are around you. So, in your thoughts and words of gratitude, remember the people who have been precious to you in your life and act. Write them this week. Call them this week. Tell them the encouragement that they have been to you. Tell them the processing that their lives have had in your life. And... Stir yourself to appreciate your food and your sleep and your sight and your hearing. Stir yourself to appreciate the warmth that you experience in the cold, the sounds of your days, the simple beauties of daily life, and then express that gratitude in a practical way. Speak something Give something, act some way, and do it today. And do it this week. And do it before November is out. Something thoughtful, something that takes planning, something that takes intent, something that you have to sacrifice something else in order to do. Something that demands of you some time. Something that demands of you some energy. And I encourage each one of us to find some point of an expression of gratitude that becomes our ethics. And in addition to whatever specific kindness you express, together I encourage us all to express our gratitude in the food drive. Make a note to yourself to put in a special effort, a sacrificial gift. Go out of your way to make the food drive a place we express gratitude. The hardest part about the food drive isn't buying the food. The hardest part about the food drive is remembering to buy the food, getting it into the car, getting it from the car into the bucket. That's the hard part. And that's an inconvenience. And I encourage you to willfully, intentionally allow yourself to be inconvenienced. Spend money that you would otherwise have spent elsewhere. Spend time and energy cutting coupons when you don't have time and space in your life to be a coupon cutter. Just so that you can maximize your buying power. Don't be limited by the 25 pound suggestion per household. Figure out how you can get more food for less money. Maybe... Get 100 pounds. Spend some real effort expressing your gratitude by doing good, making an effort to care for the thousands that are cared for by the food bank in our county and in the surrounding counties. This is the spirit of the national holiday, but is certainly the spirit behind our ancient spiritual tradition. Turn your gratitude into a thing a ritual that reminds you of the divine life cycle, a ritual that realigns you to it, draws you to participate in it, 
a ritual to remind you to be a grateful person. It enjoins you to be an ethical person, a giving person, a caring person. Let this month bring out of you that which stands in the way of participating. Here's what will happen to a lot of us. It'll be a hassle. And we'll get irritable because we're hassled. And let that happen. Because that process awakens us to the lives that we are living. Let this month reshape how you live all year long. So Holy Spirit of God within us, may we be a generous people because we are a grateful people. May we be open-handed and open-hearted people because we elevate our vision to something that is bigger than just the hassles of daily life. Be it so in us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.